Welcome to episode two of season two of Tiny Expeditions. And as we get into today's episode on chocolate and peanuts, we want to give you a word of warning. We use binaural audio in the recording of certain segments of today's episode. So just be aware of this, especially if you're driving a car and be safe because it may sound like things are coming from behind you or around you. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Chocolate. It is there for us in the good times and the bad. From Valentine's Day gifts, to trick-or-treats on Halloween, to drowning our sorrows after a breakup. So what's your favorite candy bar? I think my favorite candy bar these days is just plain good quality chocolate. My favorite candy bar is Snickers. Snickers. So what about Snickers do you like? The chocolate and the nuts go great together. So what would you say is your favorite candy bar or chocolate bar? Twix. Snickers with almonds. Oh, Snickers with almonds throwing a twist in. Yeah. Reese's peanut butter cups. So what's your favorite candy bar? Almond Joy. Almond Joy. What about Almond Joys do you like? Oh, I like coconut and I like almonds and I like milk chocolate. Let's see, Snickers. No, no, wait. Almond Joy or maybe Mounds because I like the dark chocolate. My name is Chris. I'll be your storytelling guide for this episode, and I'm also a Reese's peanut butter cup lover. And I'm Sarah, your science advisor for this episode, and I'm more of a dark chocolate gal. We all love chocolate. Put that chocolate together with a peanut and magical things can happen. But why? Is there something science can tell us? While chocolate tastes magical, the process of making chocolate is actually straightforward. But it's a process that many of us haven't stopped to think about. I mean, where does your chocolate come from? Chocolate is made from the fruits of the cacao tree, with roots dating back 5,000 years to ancient civilizations in Central and South America. So if you want to have chocolate, you need cacao trees. And these cacao trees live in a very small geographical region of the world. They're grown mostly by small-time farmers, and the trees themselves are facing numerous threats from disease to pests to climate change. But before we get to those threats, we want to introduce you to Dr. Josh Clevenger, who is using science to save our favorite chocolate and peanut treats. My name is Josh Clevenger, a faculty investigator at Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. My lab translates genomics into practical outcomes. So we use genomics to improve uh, the genetics of plants for Um, growers and and producers all over the world. After I got an undergraduate degree, I worked at Ohio State uh, working on um, tomatoes. And after that, I went and did a PhD on peanuts and uh, did a short postdoc on peanuts and then worked as a scientist working on nuts for uh, an international candy company. Dr. Clevenger's lab is involved in groundbreaking agri-science research. But for the purposes of this episode, We want to ask Dr. Clevenger, is there something you can do about the threats that face the cacao tree and the peanut plant? Because honestly, none of us want to live in a world without chocolate or peanuts. What's really interesting about cacao is that, well, first of all, it's like anything that's beautiful. um, It is very fragile. The threats that affect cacao trees are very similar to the threats that affect all sorts of different agricultural products that we use for food and for medicines um, and for fibers and clothing. 
Um, and those include viruses, like viruses that infect us. Those include fungal uh, pests. Those include bacterial pests, changes in climate, changes in, in um, uh, where those, those uh, plants are growing. The other thing about cacao, which is unfortunate, is that um, it's grown in small farms. So the people that grow it in these um, tropical regions, they're not, it's not a commercial crop, really. You know, you don't have big commercial farms. And the improvement of cacao is not done by international seed companies with a lot of resources. So you have a small community of stakeholders that are mostly in countries that don't have a lot of money to invest into uh, research. And you don't really have seed companies that would make a lot of money improving cacao. On top of that, um, it's a heterozygous outcrossing tree that, that it takes five or six years to mature to know which, line, which trees are going to be good ones. And so when you put all that together, you have a very difficult situation. Before you unwrap that candy bar, think about what Dr. Clevenger has just described. The cacao tree is grown in a limited geographical area on small farms, and the plants take five years to start producing the fruit that ultimately turns into your candy bar. And we haven't even factored in diseases that can destroy entire populations of cacao trees. We're an international world. We see how viruses move, and this happens with plants as well. And so there are viruses and and pathogens that weren't in Africa that now are, like Ivory Coast and other places where they grow a lot of cacao that are really devastating those cacao operations there. And then if you have to replant, you don't have any for five years at that location. So, um, yeah, those are very real complex issues that, um, yeah, I think everyone's very concerned about that makes money selling chocolate. Okay, this is our chocolate side. So that has the oven and that kind of stuff over there. So we try to keep it cooler. I think you can actually even feel how cool it is. This is our chocolate vault over here. So we have, this is where we keep all of our chocolates, patafuis, caramels, like orders, everything. We decided to visit Pizzell's, a local confectioner in Huntsville, Alabama, to get their thoughts on chocolate and how important it is for their business. And between us, we also wanted to get a taste of their handiwork. Sure. Um, I'm Caitlin Lyon. And I'm Michelle Novosel. And we are sisters. And um, that mostly works. It <laughs> works 95% of the time. Yeah. Um, we asked Caitlin and Michelle where their chocolate comes from. One of the um, great things about Falkland is that they are using um, beans from specific areas. They work directly whenever they can. They work directly with the farmers and they have a lot of other projects they support in those countries and areas because you know, cacao is a little bit like coffee. It's usually grown in really politically unstable countries that don't have a standard of living, anything like we would be used to at all. And they have done a lot of projects in those areas with the farmers um, to help raise that standard of living and not just totally exploit the workforce. Um, and and also by doing that, you're not getting, um, like some place like Hershey, I don't know if Hershey's does this, but I'm gonna assume they do. Like a, as an example, they are getting cacao beans from all over the world and then mixing them together and then turning that into chocolate, which is not necessarily anything wrong with that, but when you go with a smaller co- company like Felplin and a really fine company like that, they are taking 
like one of our chocolates, uh, we use chocolate, it's grown in Ghana in a, in a specific, or not, um, Indonesia. Indonesia, yeah. sorry. In a specific area, and so when we use that chocolate, you're using all that's made from one bean grown in one area. And you can really taste. I mean, just like you, just like you know, coffee. You can really, really taste where where things are grown. The improvement in research on cacao has been largely driven by food companies. Um, in fact, the Mars Wrigley Company has an entire cacao breeding program. They have research stations in five different countries that where they have tens of thousands of trees where they're actively doing agronomy and pathology and breeding. Um, and that is sort of how science is being driven mostly. There are academic groups that work on it with small grants from, from, from uh, stakeholder companies. But mostly like Hershey and Mars and companies like that are, are invest in the improvement. You have to enlist the farmers and the growers in this project because not just because they need to you know have some economic sustainability for themselves but i think a lot of the farmers are really invested in cacao like they're they are passionate about it too um and they're the ones doing i guess sort of the dirty work yeah you know um and so if you can enlist them in the project and pay them the fair amount of money for it like everybody benefits from that yeah I think a lot of the chocolate companies are realizing that we're we're gonna keep chocolate and have better chocolate if we stop using such extractive methods that that just take 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 in an agricultural setting whatever you grow the entire time that that crop is maturing I mean there's all sorts of different factors that are thrown at you I mean it, it, you know these 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 people that grow it, I mean, they're, they're basically like brain surgeons that know how to get a, a good crop from what they're working with. So if the, the climate changes or a pest comes through that means that where they live, they can't grow that anymore, that's probably the end of their livelihood. I mean, it's pretty that it's that simple. So that's why um, uh, agricultural science is, is so interesting is because it's a about feeding people and having products on the shelves, but it's also about this huge community of people that you're trying to help um, maintain their, their, their quality of life. That's a very real thing. Science is being employed to save the trees and all of the farmers that depend on them. But we haven't yet talked about the science of how this is happening. So let's take a moment to understand how the science is being used. When Mendel was discovering genetics and doing all of his amazing work, he worked on what we call qualitative traits, which are traits that are discrete. So it's a purple flower, it's a white flower. It turns out that's not, um, that's not so true because we have incomplete dominance or incomplete situations where it's a white flower, then it's kind of a reddish flower, then it's kind of a purplish flower, then it's a very dark purple flower. But you get the idea. And so... Um, for many of the uh, traits that we're interested in that are important, um, they are quantitative in the sense that um, there are genomic regions that affect some amount of that trait on a measurable scale. So what we mean is that if we um, have a particular quantitative trait for disease resistance and we incorporate that into a genetic background, what we will expect is not that every plant has the same level of resistance. What we expect is that 
the average resistance of a population of plants, including that locust, will be better than without it. And so um, when we talk about um, breeding with quantitative trait loci, what we really are talking about is shifting distributions to a favorable position. Um, because um, in agriculture, um, it's all about, it's, I mean, like, like many things, it's a numbers game. So you, you need to get as many plants healthy at the end with good yield as possible. The process that Dr. Clevenger just described is used not only for the cacao tree, but for other plants as well, specifically for chocolate's best friend, the peanut. The peanut is under some of the same threats and stresses that the cacao tree is, and so Dr. Clevenger's lab is doing research on peanuts to help combat those threats. Um, what my lab focuses on is trying to identify variation to improve peanuts for tolerance to drought. Um, and along with tolerance to drought, um, tolerance to, to incorporate low aflatoxin um, during drought conditions. Aflatoxin was discovered in the 60s. It was a disease called Turkey X in the UK. It killed 100,000 turkeys. They got acute liver failure, dead. Um, it was crazy. They were like, what is this? They, because science is amazing, they were able to figure out that there was this unknown contaminant in peanut meal from Brazil. They isolated it, found that it was being produced by a fungus, Aspergillus, and isolated it as aflatoxin. That was the first time they identified it. At that time, Nigeria was a complete global powerhouse of, of peanut um, export. Um, they were huge. They still grow top five peanuts um, in, the, in the world. In fact, um, they, they grow a lot of peanuts. In other countries in Africa, Senegal was another one. After aflatoxin was found and we started realizing the really scary effects it has on um, our health, um, safety measures were employed that essentially shut down the exportation of peanuts from these countries and stifled economies. And so, um, Having varieties that under drought stress are going to have low aflatoxin, you're not just talking about farmers save some money, maybe you save some land, you have a better way of life in the, in the southeast. You're talking about opening up entire economies. Aflatoxins are not just huge threats to the global economy. They also have major impacts on human health. And so this is where it gets really, really impactful. Um, so over 5 billion people a year are chronically exposed to aflatoxin through the foods that they eat. Um, and these are mostly children and, and, and uh, people in poor areas. Um, aflatoxin, um, its effect on your liver to cause liver cancer under uh, chronic exposure, even at low levels, um, is exasperated when you are infected with hepatitis B which is also correlated with poor areas. The risk of liver cancer is something like 30 to 50 times higher when both things are there. The estimate is almost 30% of, of liver cancer cases um, uh, a year globally, as well as stunting of children, liver enlargement, all sorts of health issues. And so really on that scale, we're talking about one of the most important issues and food security in the entire world. For those of you not familiar with a lab setting, not all of the work is done at the bench with a pipette in hand. There are other things available to scientists like computational and informatics tools. 
Here is Dr. Clevenger to tell us how informatics plays a role in his lab's research. So the lab is very focused on developing um, informatics, so computational um, uh, pipelines that allow us to what we call genotype individuals with as as cheaply as possible. And when, when we say genotype individuals, we're talking about determining the particular combinations of, of polymorphisms or variations within their DNA that distinguish them from another individual. Um, and that's helpful in many different ways. And so what we have recently developed is uh, informatics that allow us to genotype an entire genome of an individual um, cheaply and quickly. Um, and that is, is pretty unique, and, in, and it's all geared towards small public breeding programs that don't have huge budgets to, to do sort of genomics uh, research. The tools that Dr. Clevenger has just introduced us to, informatics and genotyping, they're not only being used by his lab. They're being democratized so that labs and people who would not otherwise have access can benefit from them. Here's Dr. Clevenger to tell us about one project that came to maturity thanks to these tools. We've been working on, uh, when I say we, I mean myself and uh, my, my collaborator, Wally Karani, who also works here in my lab, um, as well as my collaborator um, and PhD advisor, Peggy Ozias Akins in, in University of Georgia, have been working on a project um, that was initially designed and funded when I was working for Mars. Um, uh, investigating a really interesting source of, for uh, a low aflatoxin. And so when Walid Karani, who works for me, was a PhD student with uh, Peggy, um, uh, he did some work on this line and published two really nice papers showing that when you inoculate um, uh, it, the seeds of it with uh, aspergillus spores and they grow, that they always produce low aflatoxin even under sort of this high oxidative stress conditions compared to other peanuts. And so we started a project with Mars where we, we, we wanted to look at the genetics of that by looking at what we call a biparental population, so a line that is going to be high aflatoxin and this low aflatoxin line, um, and then doing the testing and the genetics to, to localize what, what variation within the genome of that line is contributing to that. And that project matured this year, um, and we I successfully identified three regions and three sources of variation that we think contribute to the low aflatoxin. Um, on top of that, we followed a really cool, this is an awesome story, uh, a really cool line called Carolina Black, which is sold by Heirloom Seed Company online, um, and it has deeply purple-black skin, which we call testa. And why it's that color is because it's full of polyphenols. It's full of, full of anthocyanins and other flavanols that make it that deep, rich color. And so in other situations, like there's a walnut variety that has uh, uh, pur dark purple skin uh, as well that's immune to aflatoxin. So I said, I want to see if this is going to be have low aflatoxin. Well, we, I ordered it online, no joke. You know, not a, not like a you know a, an official university seed collection, but just online. We tested it, and it was really good. Very low growth, very low aflatoxin. We said this is cool, so we tested it again. Very good, and we tested it again. Very good, and so this population out here in the field is actually a cross between this this line with the deep 
purple skin and this other line that we have uh, shown that has low alpha toxin we have genomic regions we have we have the these individuals we took a little piece of their seed extracted dna and genotyped them for these loci we know each one of those out there in the field it has a tag what it's what its genotype is um, and then we will be testing them when we get the seeds, which is why I go out there and baby them. I need to get seeds from these plants. Um, and so we'll be able to see if I combine these genomic regions, first of all, if I select for them, do I get the outcome I expect? Second of all, if I combine them with this dark purple skin, is it even better? And so that has the outcome of really if if the results are positive, we can move forward to uh, incorporate genetics for low aflatoxin into lines for growers, which would be a first anywhere. Let's take a trip with Dr. Clevenger to see, as he calls them, his little peanut babies in the field. Excellent. So what, what are we looking at? Um, this is a, a population that we call a um, F2 population, which basically just means that um, each one of these individuals, um, individual peanut plants, come from a cross between two parents. Um, that the seeds from that cross are what we call a hybrid, or what you would call a hybrid. So it's the initial cross between two inbred parents. Um, and then when you uh, allow those F, those hybrids to then self-pollinate and produce seeds. Each one of those seeds is actually a distinct, it's made up of distinct genetics. So that, that essentially you could think of um, um, a population of F2s as sort of brothers and sisters. We'd call them full sibs. Um, and so there's about a thousand of them out here. Um, and um, each one is sort of um, segregating for um, genetics for for a couple different traits that we're really interested in. One is um, um, uh, black skin, the peanut skin. So if you eat uh, um, peanuts from the west, from the southwest, um, uh, usually they leave the skin on. And so that skin is usually like a, a dark red. Um, these peanuts are segregating for a very black, deep purple skin, which has... Um, an increase in, in, in polyphenols, which are beneficial for health, but also um, we've tested it as being um, uh, antifungal um, and also having um, properties that reduce aflatoxin contamination. Science is amazing. From making sure that we all have our supply of chocolate and peanuts to also making sure that supply of chocolate and peanuts is safe for consumption. As science expands, our understanding of the world expands, but a few questions still remain. Why do we like chocolate so much? And what makes chocolate and peanuts go together so well? Is there a science behind this? Or is it merely sentimentality? Whatever it is, we love it. I think it feels like a special treat. Right. I feel like people have a lot of associations from childhood with it. Food is tied to all this. It's never just food with humans, right? My dog is not celebrating his birthday if I give him a treat. You know what I mean? Like, I'm celebrating the dog's birthday. The dog's just like, yay, more food. <laughs> but humans, we attach all this right. significance to food. And I remember uh, one woman coming in here, and I mean, like, she was getting choked up. Like, she said, this is what my grandmother would make for us. 
and like so she had all these associations with this chocolate drink and it was an emotional experience for her thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the world of chocolate and peanuts and the science trying to save our favorite candy bars in the coming weeks we will get a behind the scenes look at the science of craft brewing and we'll also learn about duckweed a tiny plant with enormous possibilities Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institute in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find our work worthwhile, we would ask you to do us a small favor and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this, and then tell someone that you heard this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thank you for joining us.